I feel like if you're a person um, who is taking over a large chain of supermarkets with the different franchises, which are all kind of like draining money and you need to make the business profitable, this would be an excellent book to Absolutely. turn this about. Right? Absolutely. Phenomenal book. Absolutely, right. But if you're somebody in the woods who's being attacked by a pack of wolves, <laughs> right. this doesn't help. It's not even big enough to throw at them. <laughs> I think Islam hates us. They have done nothing except wreak havoc and terror for our faith and our religion. When we stand up to those who oppress our communities, that Allah accepts from us that as a form of jihad. Foundations of society are fragile. We must be the shepherds of our own civilization. If anyone answers either yes or no without making necessary distinctions, both are not telling the truth. They're lying. Father, we pray that your word will become a hammer that breaks rocks into pieces, that you will raise up in this nation pulpits and prophets that will call the nation back to repentance. Will you distance yourself from those who think differently or will you join us at the table and talk about what is really important? This is the Maida Initiative, conversation without compromise. Going from uh, fixing failed filler episodes. Yes, to fixing failed states. So. Um, so, so we're, we're reviewing this uh, book with, with full enclosure, no, knowing the ending, know that, knowing that the guy that wrote this book did not fix Afghanistan. We, we still thought it would be you know, interesting to yeah. review it and, 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 and see how it is. Um, so uh, before we jump into our episode, which we can call Fixing, fixing Failed States. Right. Um, tell, tell me about your background. Why is Afghanistan interesting to you? Well, my father's name is Ergesh Uchkun, and he was um, a political refugee from Afghanistan under Zahir Shah. Um, you know, this is before the communist revolution that took over in the 70s. Uh, he was, you know, pushing for reforms, right? Like, so more democracy, um, more fair treatment of ethnic groups inside of Afghanistan. Um, and he eventually alienated himself from the king and the local, you know, and the government um, to the point where they started persecuting him. They didn't allow him um, to go to medical school, for instance. They, they forced him to, you know, become a teacher. So then that way they could more easily control where he was going to be assigned. It was all state controlled. So he became a teacher and they started, um, you know, putting him in remote areas away from his native uh, people, the Uzbeks. And um, eventually they, uh, you know, after not being able to limit his effectiveness because he was a good communicator, um, you know, and to disconnect him from his following, they put him, um, they put a price on his head. So he had to leave you know, pretty much in the middle of the night. And he fled on foot from, uh, you know, from Afghanistan to Pakistan. They crossed the mountains. My mother told me recently, like they were barefoot, you know, him and his three friends that left. Um, and, you know, he eventually made it into, uh, from Pakistan to Iran, and then from Iran to Turkey, where he met my mom and he had me. And, we moved to the United States in the 70s because the Soviets were trying to, you know, destabilize the Turkish government. And I think my father was like, I've seen this. I've seen this episode before. Um, it's time to go. Uh, and one of the people that he had left Afghanistan with um, wound up in New York City as a superintendent, superintendent of a building. Um, so he sponsored us and we came. And as I grew up, Afghanistan never left our household. Right. Like I was raised a Turk. Um, because my father considered his people Turkic, but uh, he was a patriot for his country. And he continued to write um, poetry uh, and, you know, articles and go to places and speak about, you know, inspiring, like, this idea of Afghani independence from the Soviets, um, you know, a unified Afghanistan based on, you know, from his point of view, uh, the the history of the Turkic people dispersed throughout the world. Um, 
he loved this country and his love of his country to me was foreign for a long time. Um, but a moment for me was September 11th. Um, when you started hearing names like Osama bin Laden, names I had heard growing up, you know, reading in some of the publications that he was reading, the ones that I could get that were in English. And, uh, you know, eventually I became a believer uh, in Yeshua. And um, like my heritage is kind of awoke, you know, uh, things just started to kind of hit that autocorrect. I don't know if you've ever like edited a document on, on Microsoft, but when you hit autocorrect, it just fixes everything. And that 9-11 moment was that. I just felt like the Holy Spirit did that in my life, kind of clarified my past and brought it into the present and it helped divine um, my future. Uh, so I've had a heart for it. I've watched, you know, many wars rip through it in my lifetime. Um, and I've always just been waiting and waiting and waiting for God to do some kind of work there, like to restore it. And, you know, obviously this last, uh, when the government fell apart, you know, this past year, um, it was kind of, it was hard. I mean, it was really difficult to watch that happen. Um, but it did kind of, you know, re-energize some of the, the desire to interact with the Afghan community um, and, you know, to look for doors to tell them about the, the God who wants to save them um, from their circumstances. So um, in, in response to that, right, we, we thought it would be helpful to dig into the sort of worldview of everything that's going on here, because I think we hear a lot about economics, politics, but I think one thing that our culture likes to avoid talking about is like the worldview right. behind ideas and why people do things, why people believe things. Sure. Um, so we, we decided to go through uh, this book and just kind of do a worldview analysis, right? Right. Um, so let's let's jump in. What would you say the premise of the book is? I mean, from, you know, me, I mean, I, I poured through about 150 pages of it yesterday, and the themes that he just keeps repeating are states need to be viable in order to uh, bring things like personal liberty about, um, you know, you need markets, you need, um, you know, uh, healthy bureaucracies that aren't, you know, beset by corruption. Um, the role of the state in the world can be a place where, um, you know, people uh, who are in disaffected communities, um, people who have been left behind, I mean, those are his words, uh, can advance, right? We can drag people out of, out of poverty with healthy states. And the problem is, is that there are about 46 to 50 failed states in the country, in the world, um, where, you know, people are stuck, right? And he kind of puts a, a, a thesis out that, you know, you can, you can take the themes that he talks about in the book and bring them, um, if you could bring them the bear in a government, uh, it would fix those states. So, so um, and not really anything to add to that. So what, so let, let's start off, right? Let's, again, it's very, very, very easy having the benefit of hindsight. Sure. To go in with a certain, like, bias against the book. So it's very easy for me to do, right? It's, it's almost funny that we're doing this. Right? It's almost like you want to read it and go, I mean, this is... Yeah. Right. 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 Christians, we believe that Ashraf Ghani is an image bearer of God. Sure. Right. Sure. Sure. Just a man. Right. He's a, he's a man, right? Right. And like any man, there's going to be good things about him, bad things about him, good mm -hmm. things his idea, about his ideas and bad things about his ideas. Right. Um, so let's let's start with some generosities of what this, actually, this book actually does well. Okay. Uh, for me, what the book actually did really well was it, it's really a lot of the, the principles he's talking about in nation building are are very good, right? I mean, he talks about the need for good leadership. He talks about the need for um, you know a, a team of good leaders who have a clear and concise vision. And um, then he talks about, you know, the need for transparency, right? Like accurate accounting so that, you know, there's not this opaque process where people 
um, you know, can't see what the people at the top are doing and how that will inspire confidence in people to follow after the system. Um, and, you know, some of that stuff spoke to me even in my personal life. I mean, like, you know, um, what good is a marriage if you're not on the same page with finances, right? Like, how do you how do you gain any traction in a marriage? How do you gain any traction in your life if you're not being honest about how you're spending your money? Um, and then he talks about how, you know, these things kind of boil down into, um, you know, leadership being cultivated on every level, the, the federal level, we call it the federal level, but, you know, the national government level, uh, the program level, national program level, and then, you know, kind of distilling down into, you know, local, like, precincts and how they interact, right? Like having this kind of um, clear process. Uh, that everyone can follow and will lead everyone to the same goal. And I think he does that kind of stuff well. And yeah. he, he repeats it a lot, right? Yeah. Like, so it's, you know, there's always 10, there's 10 steps in every chapter, right? Yeah. <laughs> the 10 steps in every chapter are kind of a finer tuning of what happened before it. Um, you know, at the end of the book, he's really just kind of calling people into like a, a constant state of calibration. Right. Like you have to take the things that the principles that we laid out in this book. And as you implement them, they have to be constantly adapted to the situation. You can't set them in stone. And I thought that's great. Right. Like these are these are really good and solid principles. He's obviously got experience in them, um, his experience in the World Bank and all of the different, you know, uh, scenarios in which he applies that experience. Um, he takes a lot of, you know, examples and says this is what what we did in this situation or or you know this is what the UN said we should do but in Afghanistan we did something different um, because we were able to tailor the situations to what was going on instead of you know this kind of uh, you know vanilla blueprint that the UN walks walks in with I think um, his explanation for me of how the uh, election of 2005 went down in Afghanistan was super like we need that right like yeah. he talked about like implementing biometrics and getting away from from cardboard pieces of paper um and how it would have saved money in the long run and a lot of confusion it would have made the, the 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 election more legitimate sounds kind of familiar right yeah, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah. like Okay, is that your iris print? Yeah, that's your iris print, right? Like yeah. he, he talks about going into that amount of depth and the reason why that didn't happen was somebody donated $10 million worth of cardboard. So yeah, it wound up costing be, them like 800 And they'd be offended if they weren't used. <laughs> right, right. Like The UN's answer of why they had to do it on cardboard, well, they're going to be, this person going to be offended if we don't use right, it. Right, they, they won't give us another $10 million worth of cardboard. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the stories like that are enriching to the dialogue of the book. And I mean you know, having followed Afghanistan, you're like, oh, that's what was really going on, right? Because we live here and we're reading it through a lot of different filters. And honestly, in the in the nightly news, even if you look for it, everyone's saying the same things. Um, you know, BBC, uh, all the United States media, you, you just kind of, you know, Al Jazeera, you're all just kind of looking for something different and they all have different elements of the same story, but not that kind of weight, right? Yeah. So... I think he does those things really well. I think that he he brings the examples of um, other countries and how his experience at the World Bank, um, gaining experience at the World Bank with, you know, different countries. I think he talks about like Taiwan and watching, you know, how Taiwan bloomed um, and, you know, how corruption in different places played out and how it helped him navigate what they were doing in Afghanistan at the time. Um, and it was, you know, honestly, that part of it was inspirational because I, I really do think, you know, given the time it might've worked. Yeah. And I think um, another thing that I really appreciate about this book is that it, I think it has an optimistic view of where nations can go based on data. Right. That it doesn't see poverty as this curse. It doesn't see, well, the rich countries took all the money and all these guys are screwed now, is actually saying, actually giving the dignity of saying, look, all of these countries that are broken have potential in themselves, right? not dependent upon the benevolence of larger countries. Right. And I think that's a really good message, and I think that's true. Right. I mean, his 
chapter on chapters on the aid complex, right? So talking about how um, there's this nexus of organizations that just dump aid, right? And the different ways that they dump aid, like food distribution or, you know, these, these many different projects um, that, say, the UN wanted to do in Afghanistan, for instance, and how um, they were not integrated. And a lot of them didn't actually help people. There's a great story in here about the food distribution and the woman from Afghanistan that he talked to said, send all the food back. We don't want the food. We need, <laughs> we need to be educated. You know, we need, we need other things other than food. We can grow our own food. I think her words were, my children have been starving for years. I already know how to keep them alive. You know, you bringing in all of this grain is not helping me. It's, it's not, it's only, it's, it's the, it's the teach me to fish thing, right? Or just give me what I need to be able to, to get out of this level of poverty instead of just reinforcing it with, um, you know, all right, here's another bag of wheat. So I, yeah, I really think that, um, I think that stories like that really bring it to life. They bring the dialogue to life and it helps you understand that this is, this reads very academically, yeah, right? Yes. It is a textbook, Yeah. you know, um, in every sense of the word, but uh, it helps you connect, you know, to what actually happened. A lot of that happens the latter end of the book after he's already kind of laid out his premises. Yeah. So again, lots of, lots of valuable principles in here. Right, I think there's phenomenal insight into broken systems and how to fix those broken systems and to make those systems more efficient. Sure. Uh, however, um, <laughs> and here comes the however. Oh my gosh. Like the base assumption, the base assumption of this book, I'd kind of argue, is the fact that the main thing that's broken with the world is systems. Sure. And that if we can get rid of the inefficient, ineffective, corrupt systems and replace them with transparent, clear, accessible systems, sure. then the world will function better. So did you really feel like, because this is how I felt like, and I'll just kind of, I felt like he's saying, okay, to fix a country, you actually need a unicorn. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you need a bunch of people who are so committed to the, you know, the future of the country and not to their own interests. I mean, uh, you know, you're from the UK. They've had democracy for way longer than we've had it in America. They've been dealing with corruption the whole time. You know, United States. I mean, we we've we 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 hear about it like a culture of corruption. You know, as much as people want to throw the idea of a swamp under just like you know, Trump, for instance, this idea of bureaucratic corruption, particularly in our own country, um, you can see it every time we try to do a budget in this country, right? Because there's all these like pet projects and, you know, they call it pork, bar pork barrel spending. Um, it's a little worse over there because it just immediately benefits people. Um, but so you can have all the rules in place that he talks about, you know, and you can have the administration in place that he talks about, but people are still going to try to figure out how to enrich themselves and make themselves benefit, benefits, you know, benefit of it. Whether it's immediate wealth in your pocket or influence or power that just reflects to you. So, you know, all right, fine. Take a unicorn. <laughs> first, you need like first thing, right? First ingredient, get yourself a unicorn. <laughs> Well, okay, so, yes. So, so, but I think, again, this gets into his worldview, right? Because the introduction, the kind of phrase of underline, it starts with, you know, the, what, the, what half the globe has created is political, financial, technological, and democratic states, right? Those are kind of his, those are kind of his main goals. And, um, and again, again, lots of things he's saying that are good, but I think he's just kind of assuming some foundational issues here. And I think what I, what I would, what I kind of get, what I kind of take away from this book is that, um, is that he, the, the basic assumption of this book is that, um, people are basically good. Right. Right. There's this idea that people are a kind of blank slate. And if you put them in the right circumstances, 
they will do well. And if right. you put them in the wrong circumstances, they will do badly. Right. And, and, and that's kind of what everything's based on, right? So when it talks about uh, a financial center with a rule of law, an independent judiciary, stable, competent, and honest government. Yeah, so it says you need, it talks about needing all those things. It doesn't really talk about how you know you actually get those things because it's assuming, right? There's a hidden assumption in the book um, that people are basically good. So he kind of argues lots of times. There's no clash of civilizations. Um, you know, so in, in page one, it says peacemaking has generally been geared towards ending conflict by accommodating the opposing parties with their existing personalities rather than by creating clear roadmaps and mechanisms to bring about functioning states as well as enfranchising citizens to make decisions and create pathways for new leaders to emerge. Far from being green fields for novel design and experimentation, post-conflict conditions require a firm understanding of entrenched interests as the conditions of state institutions. As a result, third, state dysfunctionality often starts in the very wake of peace agreement or transfer of power. Individuals who are used to opaque processes often come with complicated histories and networks uh, take form positions of power and view them as licenses for private gain. So, so his basic thesis seems to be there is no clash of civilizations. Mm-hmm. There is instead a clash of networks. I think one thing that I thought in line with what you're saying is I think I think he just doesn't account for people being evil and just being so wrapped up in the evil that they are um, kind of blinded by or whatever that um, they can't be the way that he wants them to be. Like moral bankruptcy, right? Um, the Taliban, for instance. None of this takes into account <laughs> these people who don't give a flip about what you're offering them. They only want what they want, and they're willing to do whatever they want to get it. And that puts you at a tactical disadvantage. It puts you at a you know intellectual disadvantage because you're sitting there going, well, why why won't they respond? You know, um, and that's really difficult. You know. Like in reading all of this, you just, I just remember thinking like, well, okay, but the Taliban, right? Right. Okay, but but it didn't work because of the Taliban. Like you, it didn't work because when when the force that you're talking about <laughs> left the building and it was left to you as the stakeholders, right? Like, you know, okay, let's get rid of the foreign aid. Let's get rid of all of the, you know, the safety nets and all the other things that are coming from the outside, the security, the peacekeeping, the billions of dollars and all of that stuff. It didn't even last 20, you know, 72 hours. Like it was, it was just gone. Right. And I think that just on a very baseline level, you know, it's just really interesting because um, you can't make a deal with the devil, right? I'm not calling Taliban the devil, but they certainly do things that are evil. Um, you can't make a deal with the devil because he's just never going to tell you the truth, right? Right. Like, you know, he's just always going to try and get what he wants out of it. It's it's not a negotiation. It's how can I take from you and fool you into thinking that I'm doing something for you? So, so the um, the interesting... The thing is, right, is like reading this book, I feel like if you're a person um, who is taking over a large chain of supermarkets with the different franchises, which are all kind of like draining money and you need to make the business profitable, this would be an excellent book to Absolutely. turn this around, right? Absolutely. Phenomenal book. Absolutely, right. But if you're somebody in the woods who's being attacked by a pack of wolves... it's not even big enough to throw at them (laughs) (laughs) wait sit down wolves let's talk about this (laughs) (laughs) like so so it's like and actually that's part of the part of the problem right so once we get once we get to page 121 it says here the public cannot be mobilized in the way that dewey envisaged unless it has a clear moral purpose Right, but it doesn't have any, like, it it doesn't. Yeah, of course, but how? Why? What? Like, what is the moral purpose? Right. 
the Taliban have a clear moral purpose. Right. Like, so, so the, the, prob- the problem is in with this kind of book is that it just kind of assumes this baseline of morality that everyone basically agrees on, right? It's this sort of generic global secularism which can't justify its own existence. So somebody from the Taliban could read this book and build a more efficient Taliban-based system. Sure, right, right. <laughs> because they, right. again, it just, it just, it, 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 there's basically a, there's like a blank space for whatever morality you want to put in here. Sure. Because it's being assumed rather than justified, right? right. So the assumption is um, popular participation is a good thing. Uh, a nation state is a good thing. Right. A, a you know, universal education is a good thing. The equality of men and women is a good thing without ever actually justifying those things, right? Right. Whereas if you meet someone from the Taliban, they're going to say, well, no, a state is not, a, a nation state is not a good thing because uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, did not operate a nation state. Right. He left the world a caliphate, which mm-hmm. which had porous borders, uh, which expanded to include everybody living under Islam. Right. Uh, not to say every Muslim is going to believe in that, but that's how the Taliban's going to justify sure. you know, what they believe. So it's not to say there's no arguments anywhere against what the Taliban have to say, but this book certainly isn't making any of those. Yeah. I mean, you make a really good point. I, I think... I think it just doesn't... It doesn't have the scope of vision that actually reflected what's happened in the region since 1900, right? Like, okay, we've always had corruption for like a hundred years, you know, let's just go back a hundred years, right? For the last hundred years, it's been very corrupt and autocratic, um, you know, all the way under Zahir Shah. And then, you know, uh, there's a revolution in the seventies, right? And then there's a communist revolution, 78. And then there's the Russians and they come in, you know, in the eighties and then that all falls apart. And then the Taliban come in. I mean, you look at it, it's always been corrupt. There's always been conflict. There's never been freedom, right? Never been true personal freedom. Um, maybe for a couple of years here and there, but not a, you know, uh, a long-term culture of it. And expecting people to just kind of buy in because, okay, the Americans are here, right? There are tanks here now, and it's not happening right now this minute. And it doesn't really address that, right? Like, how do you rally people to your cause who have been oppressed for so long? Right. And have nothing, if you ask me, but cynicism towards this idea of outside interventions. You know, uh, the, the farmer who has his farm, who is finally turning a buck because he's selling, you know, uh, like poppy so that they can make um, heroin, you know, and other opiates. Uh, how do you convince him that this is part of, you know, your growth? Right. This benefits you. Uh, you being a part of this system is what's going to change things and you won't have to sell this poppy because you'll make 10 times more money selling, you know, fruits and nuts and getting them exported and all this other stuff. And I'm sure that, you know, yeah. uh, it just kind of rings hollow, right? Like, okay, I've heard this before. Or you're telling me this, but I know that when you leave, these guys will come back and they'll force me to grow the poppies again. Or the only way that I can survive is by growing the poppies. And it's really, you know, like that, this book, it centers on optimism, but it doesn't, it doesn't draw the past of that particular area. Right. Like I know he's talking about it more globally and it's more like, how do we fix all the states in the world that are going through this? Uh, But those states have had similar things too. You know, Uh, the the Vietnamese had the Khmer Rouge, like, um, you know, the, the, the the Tamil Tigers. It's just all these groups that are like so uh, focused on their ideologies and they know what a win is for them. But you're coming in here and you're saying, well, democracy, uh, you know, um, uh, political progress, political rights and um, involvement in the process and all these other things, like these are so great. And the guy's going, okay, but... <laughs> I really just want to survive. Yeah. 
And how are you going to tell me that this stuff is going to help me survive? How is it better than what I was doing before? Um, and then on top of that, the cynicism in which I know you're going to leave. Yeah. I know it's not going to work. So why would I put all this effort into it? Right. Yeah. Which, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy or not was justified in the end. I mean, it's so, it was so hard to watch, bro. I mean, it was just like, this is everything my father worked for. Everything my father hoped for, right? Like, um, the, the Soviets leaving and then the Taliban leaving. And we all hoped for that. We all hoped that the Taliban would never, ever come back. We, you know, uh, that they would be defeated. Turns out they were just chilling in their living rooms, like waiting, <laughs> you know, for us to leave. And they had a plan. It looked like they were very quickly able to mobilize. They were able to mobilize faster than the government was. They had a better scope of what was going on on the ground. Um, and, you know, it does not appear that his academic minded principles were able to clearly grasp the idea of like that evil I was talking about. Right. This right. idea that, you know, uh, we're going to look at it from the from the from the Bible. Right. Like the heart is desperately wicked. And who can know it? You know, it, you follow, it says, they say, follow your heart, but your heart is corrupt. It will like lead you in the wrong way. And not to get into the motives of, you know, your average Talibani, but I'm sure he thinks that he's doing the right thing. Right. You know, he thinks that he's doing the right, like he, he's justified in taking life um, to stamp out evil. Uh, but the problem is there's a moral like blindness that occurs when you're that steeped in the idea of, well, I will kill somebody to get them to, you know, to get others to accept my point of view, right? Like you don't see the tyranny in that. You don't see the oppressiveness in that. You think that you're doing them a favor. Right. Um, and it's, it's just, it's mind boggling, <laughs> right? That like you're this learned person who has the ear of all of these like really influential um world systems and the part you're focused on probably rightfully is the corruption element of it and everything like that but and you know how their efforts play out on the ground in these countries but to just not really have like an understanding of what's happening there you know like why these people think that way and why they respond that way and that you're not just going to fix it by bringing them to a table and trying to build some kind of parliamentary system they don't want that why would you? Why would you share power when you could have it all? Right. Well, <laughs> right. So, and I think, I think the central issue with this book is is the central issue with secularism itself, in that it's Christless Christianity. Right. That's what he's preaching in this yep, book. Yep. That's actually really good. So, 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 what is that? Right. You've kind of got this optimistic uh, worldwide kingdom mm. that blesses the world. Right. But what you don't have is um, you're not prepared for um, crucifixion, right? You're not prepared to suffer, right? Right. You're 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 you're, you're showing a kingdom of the Messiah without uh, without the crucifixion, uh, with also without the resurrection, therefore, and without a present Jesus in heaven mm -hmm. uh, ruling over all things, right? So part of the reason we're able to sort of overthrow sort of Catholic hegemony in Europe is because there are people who are committed enough to, uh, to truth that they were willing to die for it. Right. So uh, the education came about in England because people started um, translating the Bible into English and they started teaching the common people. Sure. And the, the Catholic church at the time actively wanted to stop that. And there were two guys called um, Hugh uh, Ridley and, Thomas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, who were burned at the stake for educating people in the Bible and being part of this movement. Yep. And as they're, as they're tying them up at the stake, uh, they say, uh, you know, he says, um, take courage, Brother Ridley, because today we're going to set such a fire in England that by God's grace, we'll never be put out. Right. So, um, so secularism wants to take some of the morals of New Testament Christianity, like, um, like, um, uh, you know, servant leadership, 
right? The decentralization of power, um, equality, the education of everybody, right? All of those are New Testament and Old Testament principles, right? All of those are in the Bible, but but um, it doesn't have any promises connected to that. It just has vague hope, right? So the secular promise to the Afghan uh, living in Afghanistan is like, hey, uh, you, we, you can have a world full of education and equality and, um, and, and hope and future and prosperity. Uh, okay, what are you prepared to do for that? Oh, we'll do our best. Right. right. What about the Taliban? Oh, okay, well, um, yeah, hope, yeah, hopefully they won't come back. Whereas if you have biblical Christianity in, in that setting, then the promise is, look, you are okay with God. You are loved by God and you are in his hands and you your obligation is to do the right thing and follow Jesus. And that may mean picking up your cross and following him and you stand right. up to people like the Taliban and you stand up to corruption, even if it costs you your job, even if it costs you your livelihood, right. even if it costs you your life, because you know that God has your back right? and you've got fundamentally right. nothing right. to fear. Right. So, but but um, and, and so that is capable of producing widespread courage and battle against corruption in ordinary mm -hmm. people that secularism just has nothing to promise. Right. Has no ultimate hope. It has some compelling ideas that it has fundamentally borrowed from the Bible. Right. But it has rejected the things that actually have transformative power. Right. To to fix to fix things. I mean the flip side of that is uh, reminds me of a neighbor I had. Um, you know, we had our neighbors were Pashtus and uh their son was a little younger than me. One of their sons was a little younger than me. And we all used to just hang out on my front porch, you know, and talk. And, um, you know, he left for a while. He was kind of like a problem child, but then he like got steeped in Islam and came back and we were having conversation. This is after nine 11 about, you know, what had happened. Um, and the motivations of the people who did it. And honestly, his response was, well, you know, they have a point, right? Like, sounds sounds right to me, you know. And to me, it's shocking because, you know, I'm not in that system, you know, and obviously. Uh, but to him, it, it, it resonated in some way. And I think that unless you have Christianity, right, like an opposing uh, viewpoint, you know, um, to kind of say, okay, as a human being, I want to act and behave in a certain way, right? But this is the way that we've always done it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you would, you could look at them and be sympathetic to what they're trying to do because there's obvious things in the world. There's sin, right? There's moral degradation. Uh, there's corruption. There's there's all these things that are oppressive to humanity, and the people who are um, you know, Muslim and in your camp, right? Like from your area or, or from surrounding areas are, are saying, this is the way we fix this problem. See, this doesn't deal with the, the Ghani like premise doesn't deal with um, that. It doesn't deal with this idea that, you know, the world's messed up. Like people are dying all over the place. They're getting massacred everywhere. And what you just said was, you know, what can happen, you know, from a Christian mindset is to be able to sit there and say, well, we have God on our side. But that's exactly what the Taliban are doing. Right, right, right. right? That's exactly what the Taliban are doing. And right now they're, you know, happy as uh, as can be because they feel vindicated. Right? right. Like, you know, Allah drove the infidel out and here we are. And now we have our, our land. And... You know, I know that not everybody obviously is going to like, it's not like they didn't have a first act with it, right? <laughs> it right. was really awful. Um, and, you know, people who are bought into this kind of progress that he's talking about in the book are, you know, um, running for their lives and trying to get out. But there are, there's a, you know, like a very common denominator of people over there um, who are poor, who are the people that he's trying to reach in this book. Um, who are just going to go over to the other side. 
because right. it does address those things. It does address like moral depravity. It does address like, you know, what we would, what they call the great Satan, you right. know? So it's, it's, it's actually, the, the problem is um, that you can't live in the world without having a God, right? An ultimate standard. Sure. And the Taliban have a very clearly defined moral standard that's easy to find compelling. Right. Right. And the answer of this. It's a much simpler pitch. Yeah. 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 Whereas the answer of this crowd, um, you know, tends to be, well, that's not real Islam. Mm -hmm. Well, what is real Islam? Not that. (laughs) Right. 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 It's it's like, you know, he doesn't have a concise worldview of how to respond to the Taliban, Mm -hmm. because this is actually the central struggle of Islam in the world right now is that it's just this sort of like battle of the scholars. Right. And you kind of have all these authorities say that these authorities and these people are not legitimate. Well, our authorities say that your authorities are not legitimate. Sure. And Islam was sort of designed to function, it had to have a sort of centralized figure in times past. Sure. And that person no longer exists to say, no, 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 you guys are wrong. Mm-hmm. This, these scholars are the right scholars. It's right. just, you know, just all these different things. It depends which state is sponsoring people at this point. Right. So there's no like, compelling counter vision to the Taliban that holistically addresses people. Mm-hmm. Um, it assumes that people are just kind of great already. Right. That's what secularism is. Well, even the Taliban would be great if they just had money and education and oh my gosh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All they need is a couple Humvees. That's it. <laughs> Everything's going to be great. If you, if you make them feel like they have a military, for instance, right. Right. They have, they have their own security in their hands. Well, yeah. Right. So so, 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 because of this assumption, right, which is actually a common assumption between secularism and Islam, yeah. the people are a blank slate. Right. That if you, again, if you give people the right circumstance and setting, they'll just sort of naturally flourish into, sure. into good people. Sure. Uh, so what that leads is this systems-based approach that our goal is to take out the wrong system, put the right system in place so people can thrive. Right. right. Well, that mindset leads to, well, what happens when that system is not in place? Right. You are paralyzed. Right. I mean, I think that what it's trying to do is lure people with positives, right? Without talking. I mean, in Christianity, they call it positive Christianity. The first megachurch in America was founded on this idea that you could, um, you know, not preach about sin. Mm-hmm. Right. And that you would just preach this positivity over and over again and that people would be drawn to just the positive aspects of it. Right. But you never really deal with, you know, the I mean, out of that, we get prosperity teaching. You know, we get all of this um, uh, confusion about what sin actually is. But in 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 this case, you know, trying to do that with like uh, democracy. You know, they'll just be naturally drawn to democracy. They don't know what they don't know what it is. I mean, yeah. we, we had the same problem in, a, in Iraq. You know, they had never tasted freedom. Right. Once we give them freedom, they're going to know it. They're going to know it and they're going to run to it. Well, OK. How many like what would you say? How many like what's the population percentage that actually did that? Right. That actually responded to this idea and was willing to fight for it and die for it and lay their lives down for it. Because to them, it's just another idea. Yeah. It's not their reality. Well, so listen to this line. Mm-hmm. There is no essence to the state as states are instruments of collective power. Right? Right. So. Okay. So, so it's, it kind of comes back to this question of, okay, what kind of people are you filling that collective with? Right. I mean, you could fill them with, um, I mean, it's funny because, you know, the idea of a Christian nation is frightening in America, right? To, to secularists. It's just this idea that the country could be, um, you know, influenced by Christianity, right? Like one nation under God. Uh, and there's just this always just been this active, especially since this, you know, the 60s, this idea of separation of church and state, which is honestly nowhere in the Constitution. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a secular idea. Right. Like we want our secularism. We want our atheism. We want to be able to observe whatever system we want. But this idea of having, um, you know, a concrete set of values that's shared by everybody. Right. 
is frightening to them because honestly, they don't want to be a part of that. And I can get where people would feel like that's exclusive, right? Like this is where, you know, bad things happen. This is how you get cults. This is how you get, you know, Christian nations wanting to go on crusades and stuff like that. And I I understand that. I think the hard part, and you can, I mean, you know, obviously speak to this. The problem we have in the world is that the things that they have tried to replace the Christian standard with are deficient morally. And it has, you know, resulted in a century of more bloodshed than there has been in the entire world, right? And you can lay that, lay that on technology. We have more accurate weapon systems, you know, like it's a lot easier to kill a bunch of people now <laughs> than it was back then. Um, but the scale of which it's happened from people in power versus people who are not able to defend themselves, right? So just look at uh, Stalin and the number of people that he killed, you know, in the name of preserving uh, his brand of communism um, is staggering. Right. Right. And that's a replacement of this idea that we should all love our neighbor, you know, like love God as you love yourself and love your love, love the Lord. It says Shema on the Via Love the love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we've replaced that with there is no God. The state is God. And whoever runs the state is a God. I mean, it's just how it plays out. They'll never, it'll, it'll never be admitted to, right? But it's, right, 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 right. right. Well, well, so I think, um, again, part of the, part of the, you know, issues people have with, you know, Christian state is the same issues people can have with any state, which sure. is the pro- the danger of the state is the centralization of power into one personal group, mm-hmm. right? So, so the problem is men, um, if, if we're talking a state that looks like Jesus, we have a state which... Uh, has servant leadership. That's by, that's, by the way, the term where we get the term prime minister from in the first place. Mm-hmm. Prime first, minister, servant. Right. That's that's the goal. And where you're supposed to love and tolerate your enemies. Right. right. So a Christian, so a, a nation which is influenced by Christianity, and the Bible believes in the separation of powers, right? The priesthood and the kingship are separate. They, they have different functions. Sure. Um, a, a, a nation that's... Um, saturated in christianity should be a place of tolerance and welcome for those who are different right and what christianity (laughs) gives us is not a perfect society but it gives us a standard by which we can push back against the imperfections of society which is how we got toleration of dissenters in the first place here right because john Locke can look at the life of jesus and they say look guys if jesus doesn't use coercion on his enemies and he's God, how much less can his people use coercion to try and change the minds of our enemies? Sure, right? we, we, sure. we, we have to have um, toleration. So um, like, like if, you're, if you're going to have a God is unavoidable, right? So in this, in this God is the state functionally. Right. God is the collective right. people's will. Right. And the problem is in Afghanistan, the collective people's will led to what happened. The collective people's will ended up being uh, corruption, you know, self-serving on a wide scale. Good point. It's not just the government. Yep. And the collective people's will ended up being the Taliban as well. Right. Because it's not they're not just they're not just invaders. There's there's popular support on a on a, on a wide scale. Yeah. In Afghanistan, for people like the Taliban. So f- fundamentally, it, the will of the people becomes the will of Satan, right? Unless the people are transformed, right? I heard a um, interesting analysis, and I haven't done enough research on it to to actually prove, you know, like back it up. But uh, the reason why the military collapsed in Afghanistan was because. The government was subsidizing potato farmers. And as the government grew more and more corrupt, they stopped subsidizing the potato farmers. In turn, the potato farmers who were selling their potatoes to the military stopped sending potatoes to the military, right? And the military wasn't eating. 
So they weren't getting paid and they weren't eating. And that was why it was very easy for them to say it was better for us before. Here I am. Now I'm just now I'm actively risking my life and I have no support. Right. I have no benefit of it. And you can see how like corruption, you know, will take even the best ideas. Right. These are the best of ideas. Yeah. These are assuming people are at their best and these are the best of ideas and, you know, kind of eat away at it. Um, and of course, he talks about that a lot in the book. Um, you know, this is how we combat this kind of culture uh, that will lead to this kind of corruption. Um, but honestly, in the end, I mean, some of the stuff that he's like advocating for is just this kind of world, this world government based on this secular idea, you know, like all the nations of the world need to participate in this very secular system. Um, and he does kind of throw it, you know, like, okay, he does kind of make adages to like, say how uh, some people in Canada somewhere were, you know, um, very wary of, of allowing women with, you know, headscarves to come in and work in their workplaces. Like he does kind of talk about it, like, all right, people will still practice their religions, but it won't, it will all be subject to the state. But nobody who has a religion and practices that thinks that, right? Like, you know, I, I, uh, even just on a metaphysical level, right? Like, I believe that there's something greater than me. And if there's something greater than me, it's greater than everyone. It's greater than any government. It's it's the God that I call upon to like redeem me from my sin, to deliver me when I'm in trouble, to you know provide for my family, to bring blessing and peace into my life. And the state is a byproduct of that, right? Not the initiator of it, right? So you you look at that farmer in Afghanistan who's not getting paid anymore. Who's he going to turn to? Is he going to turn to the state and petition his government and say, why are you doing that? Okay, he should, but not if he's not have like a, you know, a long track record of being able to have that success. And I'm sure he did. So who's he going to turn to? He's going to turn to his God. And the people who are, you know, coming in the name of his God, how, no matter how morally bankrupt they are, are going to offer relief from that situation. And it's like, who would you go to, right? I'm a religious farmer, <laughs> you know? And these guys are talking about religion and these guys are not. Right. And they're not delivering, but these guys are promising that they will. And I know that there a lot of baggage comes with that, but. For sure. And, yeah. And, and so then the question, so then, you know, so people are going to talk all the time about, okay, the Taliban is not real Islam. And, you know, we can acknowledge here that the Taliban is a very specific interpretation of Islam. Sure. But then the question becomes for Afghanistan, okay, where is real Islam? And who actually represents it at this point? And there's kind of no one. Right. And I mean, yeah. So, so, so fundamentally, all of this comes down to a question of, you know, who your God is, right? So what, so what the Taliban present is, they say, this is God, this is what God wants from us. And... The, the secularists say, oh, no, I, I think it's better if we're just not ruled by God as a society, but just right. just personally. Right. But for, what, who should rule instead? Well, God is a good orderly direction. That's yeah. <laughs> right. like God is the, 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 right. the system functions as God. Right. At, at, at this point. And, then, right. and, and so it's like, OK, as long our, our God is supreme and you can have your own gods so long as they, you know, bow down to our, they, our, kind of, our system. Our right. system. Yeah. Right. Um, and what's what's lacking is somebody with a counterpoint to be able to say, no, you do not represent God. Mm -hmm. This is what God says in his word. Right. Uh, God says you shall love your enemies. God says you shall do justice and only justice. God says right. you shall hate bribery and, um, you know, refuse partiality. Right. God says you shall care for the poor, love your enemies. Um, right. Take, take care of your neighbors, um, not enslave people. Mm -hmm. Right. Be honest in your dealings. Use just weights and just measures. Right. Sure. Um, and and I'm, I'm convinced this is who God is. And because of that, I'm going to look you in the eyes. I'm going to say, no, I'm not moving from here. Right. Right. And, you know, in our society, whether it's misguided or not, you can see that throughout Western culture even. Right. Like people are upset about, you know, the virus and how it's being handled. And people are standing up and voicing their principles and okay, right or wrong, 
right? I mean, just for all clarity, I do not, I believe in vaccines, right? <laughs> like, I, you know, I don't have a problem taking a vaccine. Um, but I don't have a problem if you have a problem with it. But the response of the state in some places like Australia and some of these other places has been just really heavy duty, like crackdowns, you know, that are heavy handed um, applications of what we're talking about. Right. Like the state is the arbiter of your good. Yeah. Right. And if you do not comply with the state as the arbiter of your good, then you face the wrath of the state. And we're not talking about revolution. Right. We're not talking about things like, well, I refuse to pay my taxes to contribute to the good of the state. It's questioning the state's application of this problem. Right. And the way that it responds with, you know, kind of a uh, hardcore force you know, in different places. I don't, I'm not aware that that's happened in America yet, but it's happened in the UK and it's mm -hmm. happened in Australia and in Ireland and different places. Um, so, you know, that being said, I mean, in the West it happens, right? This idea that the state is, is, is you have to bow down to the state. So in America, it's more cultural pressure. Like if you're Aaron Rodgers of the Packers and you don't want to take a vaccine, you'll be shamed into doing it, you know, but um, yeah, like I said, I'll take it, but I think it should be someone else. It should be like left up to the individual person, right? Like right. have that kind of freedom to do it and not necessarily because the state comes in and intervenes and forces you to. Right. And right. So, and so this is what's being, this is what's being fun fundamentally unspokenly offered here. It is fundamentally the state as functional God in people's lives. Right. And we've seen, you know, the scriptures talk about it. Yeah. When we have one world government, it's it, it's not a good thing. It's this idea that people don't get to um, express their their faith, right? And it is an affront to God. It's an it's an extreme attempt to stamp down the things that God wants to accomplish in our lives, right? Like the coming back of of Jesus, um, you know, the redeeming of all people from sin. Uh, the, the bringing of his uh, kingdom on earth, you know, there this idea of a state being an obstacle to that. And what you'd say, like conventional Christianity, right? Not conventional, historical Christianity has always had this idea that, okay, we don't want one, one girl government. We don't want this heavy handed application of the state. We had that under our kings. But now when we're trying to, you know, explore this idea of what democracy plays like and, you know, individual liberty and all this other stuff plays out, you know, the idea of a overarching state has been something that Christians, I think, you know, up until like the past 200 years, maybe 100 years or so has been like, we don't want that. Right. Well, so Dan, the book of Daniel, right? What does the Messiah's king do? It breaks apart all the kingdoms of the earth. Absolutely. It blesses all the nations of the earth. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. And, and so I think we, we're running out of time here. The one thing I just kind of want, a plea I want to make to uh, anyone from Afghanistan who's who's kind of reading this is that um, you look at Ashraf Ghani's book, if you look at, um, if, if you look at Islam as well, both of those systems are kind of birth as a complete system, right? Muhammad is the head of state. This is assuming a functioning state. And the hope that these systems offer is hope within this system. But if you go read the, the teachings of Jesus, you go read the New Testament, these are all books about how to walk with God, how to grow and how to have a life that's glorious. I mean, maybe not prosperous, uh, maybe, maybe not, but glorious and amazing and beautiful and abundant mm -hmm. um, in the midst of persecution. Right. In, in the midst of being an outcast minority, right? Yes. Pope does not have to wait for the perfect system to be set up. Right. Pope can come with walking with God right now and finding all the tools. So please to read. And it also doesn't rely on the interventions of outsiders. You can have a relationship with God all by yourself that will bring you, you know, with Jesus, that will bring you 
that everything that we're talking about, right? Like wisdom and direction and blessing and 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 uh, you know salvation, savior, saving from death, not only in this life but in the next life. Not always in this life, but definitely in the next life, right? Like eternal purpose, eternal vision, um, and you know, honestly, uh, deliverance from evil uh, in all forms, this life and the next. So, it's it's so much more than just what he's proposing, right? Like this idea that the state is the solver of your problems. You know, if you call upon the Lord, name of the Lord, it says in the book of Acts, you will be saved, you and all your household. And um, I believe that and I've seen it happen. I've seen it work. Well, thank you for being here and thank you guys for listening to the Almighty Initiative podcast. We'll be back next time.